I really feel a lot of personal satisfaction and kind of these like micro confidence boosts that I get every day. You know, if I go out and I do my workout and I hit my numbers and I do it really well, I come back and I feel really good about myself. And I know that if you can put a challenge in front of me, I'll figure out a way to to make it work and to get it done. And I think doing that over and over and over and over, over the course of days and weeks and years, I start to build this this confidence that there's really no challenge that I can't overcome if I'm willing to put in the work to just get those micro gains over and over and over that add up. This episode of Fuerza, Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete, is made possible by our title sponsor, Team Adair Cross Country Mortgage. With the Affinity Program, Hopper Riders and their family can save up to $2,200 when financing your new home or existing home. With your dedicated loan officer, Team Adair provides personal and professional service. Myself, me, my family, my wife, we financed our home in the summer of 2020 in the midst of COVID, and it was by far by far the best experience we've ever had working with a lender. As a direct lender, their communication was prompt and professional, and we closed quickly. We have saved over $400 a month by financing, and let me tell you, this has really helped our family and our home business during these difficult times. For information and to get started, go to crosscountrymortgage.com affinity slash grasshopper, or click on the link on Grasshopper webpage grasshopperventureseries.com. This week, our guest on Fuerza, Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete, is Kristen Faulkner of Team Bike Exchange, Jayco. Second this summer at Tour de Suisse, she went on to win the opening prologue at Girodana, as well as the Queen's Stage in the Climber's Jersey. A former collegiate rower and venture capitalist, Kristen has had a meteoric rise in the ranks of pro cycling. From the 2019 Super Sweetwater Grasshopper to Giro Donna and next stop Tour de France Femme, there seems to be nothing that Kristen can't do. Join us as we discuss her life in Girona, California, growing up in Alaska. We'll also delve into her evolution as a professional cyclist. Find out what drives her to succeed. We'll talk about resilience, tenacity, self-sufficiency, and focusing on micro gains all of which Mark Christen has one to watch at this year's Tour de France Femme. Kristen Faulkner, thanks for joining us. Uh, we know I've been trying to get you on our podcast program, Fuerza, for a year, so thank, thanks for joining. Yeah, you finally, uh, you finally, yeah, now I'm really excited to be on. <laughs> thanks for having me. Um, my goal was to have you in person, but I know that you're you're living in Girona right now, and I saw you post a while back that it's been almost exactly a year mm. since you signed your lease. Is that right? Yeah, about a year and two days right now. So, um, yeah, in some ways it feels like I've been here for a few years, and other ways it feels like I just moved in. So, um, but it definitely feels like home now, which is really good. Um, I think when I first moved to Europe, it didn't feel like home, and so. Now I'm really happy that it, it very much feels like home. California is still home and Alaska is still home, but Girona is also home. <laughs> hey, I don't think we could we could ever go wrong with having multiple places on this planet to, to feel like home, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So we were just talking about how Girona is your new home now, and I was fortunate enough to, to visit this summer. Although just briefly, and we did get to coincide and see you a little bit, and uh, it truly is what they claim it to be, which is a fantastic place to ride bikes. And so, uh, for you being in Girona, how has that how has that changed what it means for you uh, being a professional cyclist and having your base there? Yeah, I think it's done a few things. I mean, first, just logistically getting to and from races is so much easier because I don't have to worry about the time zone and the, and the difficulty of travel. And so I don't have to schedule my races to be in these one or two month race blocks. I can, you know, where I'm living in team houses between races, instead I can just have a home that I come to between races. 
And if I have a, you know, a week-long race and a few weeks on either side, then I have a home to go to on either side. So um, it creates a lot more flexibility in my race calendar, um, and it makes it so that I'm not so jet-lagged when I do go to races. Um, I think the second thing is it, it really gives me a community over here in Europe that, um, you know, was a little harder in team housing. I'm so always surrounded by my team, and so I didn't have that personal space, and I wasn't able to really meet people outside my team. And so building a community has made Drona feel a lot more like home and having friends here and, and friends on other teams. And, you know, um, it just it, it makes a big difference. Um, and then I think the third thing is just having more variety in my training, um, more familiar roads. You know, I'm not training in Belgium anymore, um, which I was doing when I first moved here uh, to Europe last spring. And so, um, yeah, there's beautiful roads to train on in Girona. There's there's mountains, there's, you know, going to the beach, there's stuff for time trialing and for climbing. So it's nice to have um, really just, yeah, a variety of roads and the drivers are really friendly to cyclists. And so... I can really devote myself to training um, in a much more specific way than I could before. Yeah. And, you know, having lived in California prior to uh, being in Europe and um, I know as a cyclist, we're a bit of a bit of a fringe sport here in, in the United States. Mm. And it's, it's uh, we're looked at as an inconvenience at, at the best to most people on right, the road. Right. And, um, and, and knowing that that's part of the culture and you're being accepted, just a small thing, like for example, a vehicle slowing behind you, right? And waiting for a safe place to pass. Uh, you know, it, it's, an, it's an important thing, especially, you know, you're out there, you're out there, you're at work, you know, I think in the United States, people look at cyclists, hey, what are you doing? Why aren't you at work? Mm -hmm. And you're like, this is my work. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the drivers here are much safer around cyclists. They're much more respectful. You know, they slow down a lot and sometimes they won't even pass you. They'll just slow down and wait until you wave to go by. And uh, they really respect the three foot rule. When they do pass you, they give you a lot of space. They don't fly by you at super high speeds. They don't yell at you. They don't throw things at you. Um, you know, they're, they're really respectful. And I think, um, yeah, you just don't have that animosity that you do in the States. I don't really know why it's there in the States, but I think here people are just a lot more relaxed in general as a way of life. Um, and then I think there's also just an attitude that cycling is, is something that's it's healthy, it's accessible, it's a way of life. And it's also a job for a lot of people here. Um, and, and there is acknowledgement that there are a lot of professionals here and that this is our job. So I think it's cultural, but then it's also very enforced from the from the government as well. They actually have um, drones and, and helicopters that, you know, watch um, the traffic to make sure that they're respecting cyclists. And they do give tickets out to cars that don't respect cyclists. And so um, it's, it's cultural and it's also law enforcement. And I think it creates a much safer and, and better community here for cyclists. That's fantastic to hear. So, so Kristen, um, you just got back from the Girodona where we saw you ride an incredible ride. Um, and as we left, I saw you last in Joan. I said, we'll see you in pink. And you kind of, you kind of just chuckled <laughs> and, uh, that, that, that came, that came to fruition. So tell me about the, the lead up to the Giro and we'll start with the first stage. Uh, I know you told me that your team wasn't expecting to work for you yet. You found yourself in the leader's jersey. Tell me about the, the build up to the, the, the Giro Donna and then that, that first day. Yeah, well, I actually wasn't meant to do the Giro. Um, I was kind of a last minute fill in for my teammate who got sick. Um, interestingly, because um, I had a really big race calendar in May and June, and so uh, the idea was that I needed a bit of a break before the Tour de France. Um, so I did come in very last minute to the Giro, and then, yeah, we were racing for our GC litter. I met a Sprat, who we call Spratty. Um, and, you know, the, the prologue uh, doesn't really make a big difference in GC. Like, you know, it, it can, but um, we were given the go-ahead to, to go full gas in the prologue to try and, you know, all get a really good result. And so um, that's what I did. And I didn't have any pressure on myself. I didn't have any expectations for myself or the team. And I hadn't really done a short, ever a short time trial like that. So I didn't know what to expect. Um, and so I just went out there to have fun. And, <laughs> and um, I think, yeah, when you go out there with a really positive attitude like that, great things can happen. Um, 
So it was really nice. Uh, my teammate also ended up on the podium with me. She was second. And so, yeah, that was a big surprise for everyone. But it didn't change our plans. You know, it, um, our plan was still to race for Spratty for GC. Um, for a few reasons, I think, you know, first, um, I didn't want to have that pressure on me for two big grand tours in July. And I, I do want to have some opportunities at the tour. Um, and then the second thing is just I'd never finished a 10-day stage race before in my life. I, I started the Giro last year, and we had a pullout because um, my teammate had COVID. So to go in, you know, I didn't have any idea how I would fare at the end of a 10-day stage race. And um, and the GC, you know, a lot of the GC determining stages were at the end. And Spratty has a lot of experience. She's been on the podium before um, at the Giro more than once. And so I think it just made a lot more sense for our team. And so... Uh, even though I, I rode in pink, it didn't change our, it didn't change our plan at all um, in terms of going for her for the GC. And then um, things did kind of take a bit of a turn um, because she ended up getting sick with COVID about stage six. And so at that point, we didn't have a GC rider, so we decided to change our plan and go for stages. And that's when I was given the go-ahead to try and go for a stage win on stages eight and nine. And that's what I did. So I went out on a break and stayed out most of the day solo on stage eight, but wasn't able to get on the podium. I finished fourth, and then on stage nine, it worked out, um, and I was able to win the queen stage. So that was really exciting. But again, it, it came from um, you know still doing a lot of the, the team plan, which we had to be flexible about, but it was still very much um, in line with what, what made sense for the team. Yeah. And, and you had one difficult day out there and maybe that probably changed maybe the freedom that you had to go for the stage victories. But I noticed, you know, you posted some incredible numbers, but yet you ended up suffering really bad from the heat. Was it a matter of um, dehydration or, or nutrition? What was it that, what, what happened on, on that day? Yeah, it was dehydration. Um, and, you know, normally I'm pretty good in the heat. And so it wasn't a heat issue. It was just not drinking enough. We had a pretty long lead out going into that climb. We were I think it was, you know, 8K, it was maybe 20 minutes, and I went through a whole bottle right before then. Um, and But we didn't have any teammates going back for bottles in that last sector before the climb, which um, normally we have, you know, either a, a feed zone or someone going back for bottles. So, um, yeah, I went through a, a bottle then, and as I was running low, it was actually a communication thing. Like, I didn't ask my teammates for any water because I had a little bit left, and I knew we had a feed at the top of the climb. Um, but then we had that full gas effort on the climb, went on to make attacked. I went with her attack. And then when I was in that group of four, we went by the feed zone, but we went by at a really high speed. And, um, I didn't, I would have had to slow down to get my bottle from this one year at that point. And I didn't want to create a gap between me and the other three girls in my group because I, I felt like if I created a gap, I might not be able to get back on. And so I went by this one year really fast and wasn't able to grab water. And then, um, when I kind of fell back to, to help Spratty, her group, um, catch back on, uh, what ended up happening was I needed water at that point because I was out of water. And I tried calling the team car. Um, but my teammate Spratty was like, no, we need you on the front to go full gas, you know, to help bring this back. And, and I didn't communicate how badly I needed water. I just was like, okay, full gas on the front. I have to go again. <laughs> and so um, it was actually a communication error on my part. You know, I didn't, I didn't express that I, I really did need water at that point. And um, I think if I expressed that I really needed it, then <laughs> I would have had the free range to go get water. Um, and so I definitely learned that in those moments of stress, like I really need to to advocate for what I need and, um, and, and really communicate when I am suffering because at that moment I just wanted to help my teammate and I was digging myself into a hole, but I was like, if, <laughs> if I can just help a little bit, you know, they need me right now, then, then I'll do it. Um, and then when I did, you really, you really came, you really came back out of that though. I was impressed. I thought, you know, that sort of deficit into the, into the, into the future stages. So, uh, you, you, it was remarkable. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah. By the time, by the the rest of the day, though, I mean, I was just soft pedaling my way home. Like, the Gruppetto came by me, and you know, Voss was like, "Here, hop in," and and I couldn't even get in the peloton that was going by with that many people at, at a slower pace. Like, I I fell off the back of like a few different groups when I tried to hop on. My body was completely, completely depleted for the rest of the day, and I lost so much time. 
And for me, it was okay because I wasn't going for GC, but it, it would have been nice had I been, had I stayed up there in GC for the first few stages so that we could kind of play that game with me and Spratty, which was the plan. Because even though we were racing for Spratty, we didn't want all the teams or anyone to know that we were racing for just her because then we could have thrown me out on an attack and forced all the other teams to chase. So we lost the ability to do that when I did get dehydrated and lost time on GC because I was no longer a GC threat, so we couldn't play that game. Um, but yeah, I mean, that night I had to drink a lot of fluids and electrolytes and really, um, yeah, eat and drink and, and make sure that I refilled. But the next day I still didn't feel well. Um, I wasn't fully recovered on stage five. Like I think as soon as it was a pretty flat stage with a sprint finish and as the Peloton got towards the finish, you know, everyone kind of picks up the pace with the lead outs going into the finish. And I just could not, I couldn't keep up with them. Like I was off the back again, going into the, the finale and I finished solo off the back on that next sprint stage. So it really took me two full days to recover. Um, and it wasn't until stage six when I came back and felt good again. So it just goes to show, you know, one extra bottle of water, you know, during that 20 minute period when I needed it would have made a huge difference. Yeah. And going into the, the couple stages that you did win and, and the, um, the queen, the queen stage, um, you know, I like that your post was for those who said, I'm not a climber. And it seems that you, you still keep kind of not putting a label on yourself as to what your strengths are, but you seem to be strong as an all rounder. Tell me what it was like to, to take that victory. Yeah, I think it was, um, it was, it was exciting. Um, I think, you know, what I was most proud of was just, I was out all day solo on the front and they weren't gaining time behind me actually. On that last final climb, um, I was with my breakaway companion and um, she actually went in front of me on that last climb to slow down the pace because she couldn't give up. And then that's when they started gaining time on us. Um, and so that's when I really felt confident, like, wow, I can actually climb with these women. And, and that for me was really validating. Um, and then, yeah, going into the finish, I just had to keep that distance um, and kind of TT my way to the finish. Um, but I think it wasn't until that last climb of that day where I really felt, okay, wow, I can really climb, you know, at the same pace as some of the, the best climbers here. Um, and before that, it was kind of hard to gauge because on day four, I was like in the wind protecting our leader. And then on the other days, I was kind of solo out in a break all day. So they weren't necessarily going full gas. And so it was on that last climb of the day when I really felt, um, yeah, I really felt confident that I'd come a long way in, in my climbing over the last year or two and, and that I could really contend in a GC role going forward in, in future races. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious for on, on a couple of things. You know, one is if you could speak in a moment just about the the plans for the the Tour de France, and and the other piece is that you know in some of the articles I've read about you, and then you speaking with no expectations or really an unknown. Um, obviously, you you have big goals for yourself, and I think it seems that they're they're kind of um, maybe being defined as you go but at a certain point it seems that you, you are going to realize where you have realized what a good writer you are and your expectations what's that like now that there's a little bit less of an unknown but you know that now that you have the capability so those personal expectations and the expectations within the team how tell me tell us about that evolution of of, of that for you as a cyclist yeah you know it's been interesting we actually haven't officially raced for me in any in any GC capacity all year. Um, even at Azulia when I was on the podium, that, that wasn't actually planned. I, I staged an attack to try and just make everyone chase and go for a stage win. Um, and then two GC leaders came after me and enjoyed me, and I sat on their wheel until the finish line. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, I, I had an injury this spring um, with a really bad concussion, and so coming back, in May and June was really just a time for me to build fitness, gain confidence with my new team, learn to work with them on the road. There's so much more that goes into racing than just being fit. And I also had a lot to learn around things like hydrating properly and working with my teammates and communicating with my teammates when I do and don't feel well and 
making it through a 10 day stage race and seeing how I'm faring at the very end of it and making sure that at sprint stages, you know, I can, I can finish in the bunch. And there's just so much that, that goes into it beyond just fitness. And, um, so I think in May and June, yeah, I felt really confident that my fitness was coming back. And, um, but yeah, it also took time to build that trust with my teammates and, and learn how to ride with them. And I think now the team, yeah, has a lot more confidence in, in what I can do. And I certainly do myself. Um, and yeah, going into the tour, I mean, we don't want to make super concrete public plans because we have, you know, we do have three strong climbers on our team, like Anais and Testaban and Spratty are both really strong climbers. And unfortunately, Spratty wasn't able to show what she could do because she had to leave the Giro, but she was fifth in GC before she had to leave. Um, and so one of the nice things is that, you know, yeah, I, I can be up there competing with, with some of the big top riders, um, but we have a lot of cards to play. And, um, and, and in cycling, like that's one of the great advantages of, of having multiple riders is that you can play that game. And if it turns out that one of it, one of them attacks and they get a break and they end up getting a minute on GC, then, and, and they're a strong climber, then we might end up working for them. And so there's a lot of things that can happen. And, and I think we all just have to be bought into that mentality. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I hope that more opportunities will open up. I know that for the rest of the season that I do have opportunities to try and race for GC. Um, but I also enjoy going for stages as well. I think from the outside, there's this idea that like GC is this really coveted thing. But I, I also really enjoy going for stage wins um, because I think it's a whole different strategy that goes into it. Um, and I find it to also be really refreshing and fun. So um I think they're both challenging in themselves. Um, so, yeah. Do you find that in those moves when you're out there that, that that's a similar uh, mental state to an individual time trial when it's, when it's a sense you against the clock or you against what against yourself? There were tw two different times that you rode for a long period of time by yourself and you seem to be very comfortable in that, in that space. <laughs> Comfortable. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, you look comfortable. Yeah. No. Um. <laughs> mentally. Mentally. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like a long effort. Um. Yeah. I don't even think that there's time trials that are that long, but um, definitely a sustained effort and, and managing that effort was something that was really important. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I I just really enjoy attacking. I enjoy making the race really dynamic. And for me, that's what's really fun. You know, cycling, it's, it is a race, but it's also a game. And I really enjoy that game element. To me, to me, that's what's so fun. And so if I'm in a race and it's, it's just, you know, get to the finish and then go up the climb as fast as you can, um, yeah, sure, that's fun. But it's not as fun as kind of mixing things up, making people chase, staging attacks. Um, you know, that to me is what makes things really, really fun. So um, I think part of it, too, is just my riding style and, and how that can play into some of the team dynamics. Because if we have riders who are also really good climbers but don't enjoy attacking as much, then we might have them in a very different role than we might have myself. And then whatever sticks, sticks. And so um, I think we have to play our cards right, but we also, we, we also want to be able to play that game because, um, yeah, as an individual, I might not come out ahead as often if I'm playing that game. But as a team, we will come out ahead more often if we're all being able to play that game. So I think for me, yeah, it's just I, I enjoy that a lot. Some writers don't. Um, and but if but if I can be in that role, I think it actually is better for our team in the long run. And it still gives me a lot of opportunities like we saw it at, at Julia and, and also in the stage here at the Giro. So yeah. Um, Part of it just comes down to, to rider preference as well. Yeah. So I appreciate the chuckle at the word comfortable. So so the <laughs> the brainchild of this of this podcast being Fuerza inside the mind of the ridden athlete is having raced so many years and being around racing. Um there it's sadistic it, what what we have to do and that place that you have to go to. So uh, I don't pretend that that is uh comfort in any sort of way. So yeah. I want you to just tell us a little bit about, and it's, it's difficult to tease this out of people because in order to spend the time, and we look at races, but really it's those hundreds and thousands of hours training. Tell me what it is that, that makes, that, that drives you, 
you know, to, when you're training and when you're racing to hit those numbers and to do those workouts when it's hot, like it was today, or when the weather's crappy in the winter, what is it that, that motivates you and, and keeps you looking calm, even though you're suffering out there? <laughs> um, I mean, the first is I just love riding my bike. I love being outside. I like having the sun on my face, the wind on me. Like I just, I feel a huge sense of freedom and adventure when I'm on my bike. And that's, I know that that's, um, yeah, the hard work is, is part of what enables me to also do this job and, and feel that joy of riding my bike. And so, um, yeah, part of it's just like, you have to put in the work in order to get the benefits of, of the life I want and the life I want is to ride my bike. Um, so there's that element to it, which is like every job has, has hard work you have to put into it. <laughs> um, I think the second is I really feel a lot of personal, um, satisfaction and, and kind of these like micro confidence boosts that I get every day. You know, if I go out and I do my workout and I hit my numbers and I do it really well, I come back and I feel really good about myself. And I know that, um, if you can put a challenge in front of me, I'll figure out a way to, to make it work and to get it done. And I think doing that over and over and over and over, over the course of days and weeks and years, I start to build this this confidence that um that there's really no challenge that i can't overcome if i'm willing to put in the work to just get those micro gains over and over and over that add up and i've seen that play out you know in sports but then i i think it transfers to the rest of my life as well like i i have this mentality that if i just work towards something then i can figure it out or i can get it done and I think that comes from that, that repetition over and over and over in sports of challenging myself to, to do that. Um, and I think there's an element of, um, yeah, it takes a little bit of like courage to push yourself deep there. Um, but I, I always feel a little bit more courageous as like a person when I've come out of that. It's like, I, I, I put myself there and I, I had the courage to do that and it hurt. It was uncomfortable, but I was able to achieve the goals I set out for myself because of that. So I think it's more about building those character traits that I want to see in myself. It's like the self-improvement, the little confidence boost that I can achieve something if I work towards it. It's feeling that sense of courage to put myself through the uncomfortable um, it's, it's more about how I feel about myself after I've done those workouts and yeah, no one, no one else, I mean, besides my coach, no one knows my numbers. No one knows how good my workouts were. Like there's not any external validation for that daily suffering, but I definitely get a lot of personal satisfaction out of it and, and how I feel about myself. Yeah. Was this, uh, part of your parents' 20 year plan when they, when they left the East coast and moved to Alaska to raise four kids is to, is to get this tenacity into you? I have no idea their, what my that, parents were thinking. Was that their long game? I don't know what they were thinking when they moved to Alaska before <laughs> to, to raise five kids in their early twenties before the days of internet and cell phones. Like I have no idea what could possibly have been going through their mind to think that was a great idea. <laughs> Um, no, it, it all worked out really great. Um, but yeah, they were very brave and, um, like crazy in a good way, I guess, to, to have done what they did. Um, but yeah, definitely from a young age, you know, tenacity, self-sufficiency, resilience, like those were very, very much values that were drilled into us. I think being in Alaska, maybe that sense of, yeah, self-sufficiency and, and resilience and, um, my family always went on hiking trips in the outdoors and we all did sports growing up and yeah, those were just values they really had and values they really instilled in us. And I think I still value those characteristics in myself today. So definitely it was an influence for my parents. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're traits that I'm, I'm happy that I have and I continue to work on, um, it's good to hear you speak towards the traits because, you know, having been an educator for almost 30 years along with the bike stuff I do, it's, you know, I think as young people, there's a, there's a sense that we have to figure things out or this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to be. And getting a little ahead of oneself as opposed to focusing on those 
the obstacles in life, the challenges, the perseverance, that those lead to being the best at whatever uh, that we're going to do and whatever we're going to be. You know, it's mm. not necessarily, there's not a script in front of us that we're checking off uh, boxes to get to a certain income bracket or a career. Um, I do want to ask you about careers though, because I know a lot of the articles about you moving from, from venture capital into this and, and, and um, which is a huge move, but it seems to me, it must be very freeing for you to know that you've done your career. You've done your, that part of your career and to be now opening yourself up to these new challenges as, as a cyclist. Um, I guess you're maybe two years into it now, so it's not quite the same as the interview a couple years ago. Um, how does that feel to you to have kind of closed that chapter or, or put that on pause and now be 100% this is who you are and this is what you do? Yeah, I've never regretted my decision. It was definitely the right choice for me and, and continues to be. Um, I think that when I left my job, I felt really comfortable taking the risk or not comfortable I felt better taking the risk because I felt confident that if I wanted to have a career after cycling I could because I had um you know I had a credible career and I, I had done well in it and um and I I yeah had traits that would make a, a good employee in finance if I wanted to go back um and then I think secondly, there was a little bit of a financial cushion for me because I had four years of savings, um, you know, not a lot. I was still an entry level employee, but enough, you know, much more than I was making in cycling at the time. And so I felt that if cycling didn't work out and I absolutely hated it and I was miserable, I could come home and I'd have like a year worth of savings to just like figure my life out and get a new job. And I felt confident that I could get a new job. And so I think I felt comfortable taking the risk because I was like, the worst that happens is I don't enjoy it. I come home and I just restart exactly where I left off. And so that to me made, made the transition a lot easier. But now that I've made the transition and it has worked out, um, I don't feel like it was nearly as big of a risk as I envisioned it would be like I think when I was thinking about leaving my job I imagined all the things that could go wrong and why it wouldn't work out and how horrible it would be if I didn't enjoy myself but that fear was so much worse <laughs> than any of the the consequences of leaving my job um and so I think yeah it was good for me to be really prepared for those things but I definitely was way more scared and fearful than I than I needed to be um but yeah I mean I I definitely miss parts of my job, um, but I don't regret at all my decision to leave. And I think, I think I'm, I left at a really good time. Like there's definitely moments where I wish I'd started cycling earlier because I'd have more experience and better bike handling skills and, you know, I'd have more years in, in my cycling career. But if I could go back and do anything differently, I don't think I would because I have a really great education that I invested in. I have really good, you know, enough of a career that I invested in where I could really show results in my career. Um, but then it was also short enough that I still have enough time to go, to go do this um, cycling. So I think there's pros and cons to everything. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah. I want to ask you about an article I read and I can't remember where it was. I was searching for it today. And, and I think, you, you're speaking to the uh, to the parity in cycling for men and women um, that's that's beyond due. There's been a great increase in in the in the base salary uh, and benefits for women in the pro tour. Um, but I think you bring well, not think you certainly bring uh, years and experience outside of cycling to the hmm. to this discussion. Yeah. And the way that you're looking at it, uh, you're not somebody who's been a junior racer and you're now 21 in the pro field. You have your your degree and have been working in that. What's it like, one, seeing it from the outside, and two, having the confidence and speaking to those things early on and not willing to just accept, oh, this is just how it is in women's cycling? Yeah, I definitely came in with a much more modern perspective than cycling had at the time. Um, it was very traditional and, and continues to be very traditional, and that's changing a lot. But I found it to be really sexist when I came in, and that was really hard for me because I came from a world 
where, um, you know, yes, the U.S. And, and tech in the U.S. has its issues. You know, women typically, historically, haven't graduated with engineering degrees or worked in finance um, as much as men and, and also still struggle to get equal pay. But, you know, coming into the, the pro peloton was just um, magnitudes different. Um, you know, just the concept of maternity leave, for example, like cycling is a job. Like this is my professional career. We get paid to do this. And you would never in a workplace in the U.S. hear someone say that a woman can't leave her job for maternity leave and then not get, if she leaves to have a baby, she's, you know, can't get her job back. That would just never happen in a corporate environment um, anymore in the U.S. And and yet in cycling, there's this idea that if a woman left to have a baby, like she could never be a cyclist again. No team would ever have her back. And this, it was, you know, A, like they would never want to pay a woman for maternity leave while she was gone, which again, if this is a job, like this is a professional career, that would happen in the U.S. Like you would get paid on maternity leave. And then we've had riders come back, like Lizzie Diagnan, Emily Newsom, like there's been so many moms who've come back and been and excelled, you know, completely excelled in cycling after giving birth. And so it's this outdated mentality that you can't be a strong athlete after giving birth. And Lizzie Dagnan, she's won so many world tour races after giving birth, had been at the top of the game, top, one of the top cyclists in the world. And so I think it's, you know, the, the cycling community is starting to change that thinking. Um, but it's, it takes time, and I think it takes people really, yeah, challenging the system. Um, but even now, you know, we're so far behind. Like, women, top riders on the women's side still make a fraction of what the men make, you know, one-tenth of what the men make, um, or less. And, um, and that's considered okay, and that's considered normal. And it's just the way that society views women's sports and women athletes. And I think it's still seen that for a lot of men, like, this is a job, and for women, it's a hobby. Or, like, for women, it's a luxury that you get paid to do this. But no one would ever say to a woman in the workplace, oh, it's a luxury that you get to do this because your primary job is staying home raising kids. So it's like, no, <laughs> this is my job. Like in the same way a man has a job. <laughs> and so I think it's just shifting those attitudes um, uh, in cycling and it, it takes time. And, and unfortunately, the cycling world was even further behind tech and finance, which I didn't, at the time I worked in tech and finance, I didn't know it was possible. <laughs> but we're making progress. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, it's great to see the progress and um, to see such a discrepancy in the wages is tough. And it's, it's good to hear you speak to the, 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 sh the shift and, and, and how that's, and how that's viewed, especially when it comes to being a mother, as if somehow that excludes one, you know, that's the end of your career, which absolutely should, should not be the case. I mean, I mean, yeah. Like, can you imagine uh, like a company like Google having a different minimum wage for men and women? Can you imagine a company like Google just like paying all the men 10 times the woman? Like it just, you know, we put in the same work and, and, and a lot of the times we don't even have the opportunity to get better media attention because a lot of the TV isn't streamed. So it's just like, it's just interesting, like how different the attitudes are um, and that some of the things here are just totally acceptable that would never be acceptable in a, if you, yeah. if you really viewed it in a professional way. Yeah, and some people will say, well, the salary is rev is revenue-based, and so the men generate more revenue, so they're earning more salary. But then one would argue, well, what's being done to promote women's cycling so that it's in front of people, so it is generated revenue? I mean, for example, I've been watching cycling, what, for 30-some years, and just now with GCN, they have all the women's stages like the full thing. This is the first time I watched an entire women's stage race with the Giragana and it was freaking exciting. And they have all the women's races, but that's never been a thing for men and women and boys and girls to, to follow and to build up that following and hopefully have a hundred thousand people at the mountaintop finishes like the men. So they can't just say, say it's based upon revenue generating when they're not live streaming and having the articles to to then generate the revenue yeah i mean you can't make revenue without any investment just period like business principle you know number one so if you're not investing in something you can't make revenue um so yeah just those arguments you know and then and then sometimes they'll say like oh well 
we invested in it 10 years ago and it didn't make a return. And it's like, yeah, it won't make a return in one year. Like men's cycling has been around for over a century. Like, of course, it's going to take more than one year to get a return. Like name any any large business, you know, in the U.S. right now in the, in the stock market that was profitable in its first year of existence, like very few. <laughs> so I think, yeah, it's just this attitude that they're treating women cycling very differently than they treat men and they're not willing to make that investment to, to see their returns. Um, so Speaking anyway. of investments, um, the Tour de France Femme, I think they said last race was 2009, but that wasn't like an officially joined to the Tour de France. So I think that's the first time in 30 years what what's it like um how are they promoting that and what's it what what's your predictions in terms of um the long-term commitment to that and and to the the the, the reach and the success for this for this upcoming tour yeah i really do think it's here to stay this time you know i think in the in the past the tour de france kind of you know they had a race and they didn't and then it was one day and they were kind of one foot in one foot out and felt pressure to do it and I really think the times are changing now, and I think they're they're changing permanently, uh, which is great. And I think that's really, really great for, for women, for athletes, for the entire sport. And so I think what we're going to see is there's going to be a lot more media. I think they're going to see a lot more people who never followed women's cycling before probably tuning in to watch the Tour de France and then maybe finding that they really enjoy it and sticking around. I think you're going to see some sponsors come on specifically for the Tour de France. Like I think some teams have new sponsors that just came on um, just in time for the Tour de France. And so there's going to be more money pouring in, which in the long term is going to mean more money coming out in terms of revenue. So I think it's a really good catalyst for investment, which then we'll see more returns in the long term. So I think it's going to be a really good snowball effect for, for women's cycling. And, and I also think more race organizers are going to see the success of, of the Women's Tour de France, or at least see the media around it and the PR it's getting, and they're going to want to hop on that bandwagon because it's not, I mean, there there is a lot of positive PR that comes to around supporting women's sports, and a lot of the race organizers, I think, are going to want to be on that bandwagon. Yeah, and, I, and uh, you know, the model for this, I, I can only imagine that, with your with your background in finance and venture capital and working for a women's own venture capitalist and now with cycling that 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 things are starting to click in your mind of of things that can do i know you're just starting your career so in 10 years after you've achieved all of your goals uh do you imagine yourself being involved in this in a, in a leadership way i have no idea what i'll be doing is that in too 10 far years. Is that too far ahead <laughs> i mean five years ago if you told me that i would be a professional cyclist i'd never you know six years ago i'd never been on a on a bike and clipped in so um yeah 10 years from now is is hard to predict um yeah i mean i think i i definitely have a passion for business and for making things more efficiently run um I have a passion for uh, gender equality and I have a passion for cycling. So I think there's a world in which I can merge all those. Um, and I definitely have a passion for, for making an impact, you know, and, and doing what I can to, to improve the things I really care about and, and the, um, yeah, the, the kind of pursue those values and, and see them executed. So I think it's definitely a possibility. Um, yeah, but <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea what the future holds. And right now I'm just going to do what I love and do it well and just kind of see what, see what happens. That 100%. Sorry for jumping you too far ahead. You're focusing on recovering from today's riding for the tour. Uh, I'm looking at my notes and, and I'm kind of jumping around a little bit between the uh, – the past and the present and the, that was too far ahead in the future but i want to go back to the past a little bit because i'm curious about rowing mm. tell me tell me about rowing and tell me how big of a deal it is to have the 2k indoor rowing record so clearly you're a phenomenal athlete tell me about the transferring from a sport like rowing because i've seen a couple of their other athletes that didn't start cycling until their late 20s but came from rowing what, what does that mean? What is this? Yeah, it's funny. That 2K record, I think I mentioned it to someone one time. It is just stuck like every single interviewer and um, and, and our author and article <laughs> has it? mentioned it. And it's, it's kind of funny because it was not, what, what it was not the peak of my rowing career. Um, 
Yeah, so basically to get a spot on a boat, one of the tests you do is kind of like their version of an FTP test. You know, it, it kind of shows your fitness, okay. but it's not everything. Um, I think for me, the biggest lessons from rowing that transfer, so there's all the fitness aspects of it, um, which is, you know, strength and endurance. Um, and and then also, you know, you, <laughs> um, yeah, just the, the full gas endurance effort, putting yourself in a hole. Um but then there's also the, the team aspect of it. Um, and then there's there's some tangential things that most people wouldn't think about. So the, the team aspect of it, um, you know, it, there, it's not just about how you row individually. It's about how you row as a team and as a unit. And um, um, just simple things like keeping the boat stable. You know, I might be able to ride to row super fast on my own. But if I'm with someone else in the boat and we have different styles of rowing and different strokes and the suddenly the boat's going to be tipping back and forth the whole time and that's not because either of us is doing it wrong it's just because we're both doing it differently and so part of making the boat go fast is figuring out okay how do you row well together to make your strokes in sync to make everything about the way you row in sync because you might be really fast individually but then you can put two people together and they just don't they don't, they don't go fast together and so you really have to accommodate the way that you row in order to make the whole unit go as fast as the unit can go. Um, and so that's something that I, I, I've heard it kind of transfer a little bit to track cycling a little bit, like it's like team pursuit. Um, but it definitely happens on the road as well. Like you notice, um, like you're giving a lead out or if you're behind someone, you know, whether they accelerate, how they accelerate through the corners, um, all those little micro things when, when you're behind someone or in front of them or riding next to them, you really have to be conscious about that, that spatial awareness of how you ride with other people. Um, but some of the other tangential things that I don't think people think about a lot, like I was on my TT bike earlier today and I was going around corners on my TT bike and I noticed I was like using my obliques in a very similar way that I use when I keep the boat stable when I'm rowing and being able to apply a lot of pressure through my legs while I'm trying to keep the boat really stable with my core is something that... Um, I, I practiced for 10 years. And so it's, how do I keep a super, super stable core when everything around me is moving and then still apply maximum pressure through my legs? So that helps me a little bit on TT cornering, but it also helps me, um, <laughs> if, if you see me when I'm riding, like I'm just like so stable on my bike. Like I look so stoic. Like I don't slash my arms around. I don't move a lot. I'm just so stable. And a lot of that is because it's been drilled into me for years and years in the boat that like my core and my glutes and my body and like everything needs to be so stable. And then my legs can be firing and I can be moving my legs a lot, but I cannot move my core or my upper body at all. And that's something like most people don't think about from a rowing stand. Like, but the people who are coming from rowing, they understand that. Um, but if you weren't a rower, you might not understand that, like, that's why my body does what it does when I'm on a bike. So it's some of those more subtle things that rowers might get, but for the outside world might not. That was going to be my next question. That was just me guessing was, was the, the countless hours training your, your form and your position. I know that when we were texting, uh, in Girona trying to meet up and you were heading out to tour de Swiss and you said, Oh, I got to go get fit for my time trial bike. I've got, I've got the tour de Swiss coming up and I don't, I don't really know how to time trial. I haven't done it much. And the next thing I check, you just, you'd won the time trial. And so, um, looking at your position on that, I was thinking that there had to be a connection between, uh, you know, your position rowing and on the time trial, because, I think you, you were saying that you don't have a lot of experience on the time trial, but like your body and all that kinesthetic memory is transferring over to, to mass, to, to, to the, the most efficient position possible. I think so. And in definitely some ways, like Evie Stevens, Evelyn Stevens was also a rower and she was a great time trialist as well. So I think there's that, that engine that comes like from a purely physical standpoint from rowing. I think there's a psychological element, which is just yeah, that, that pain cave that we're used to putting ourselves into. And then there's a third, which is kind of this like kinesthetic, kind of like how the body feels and the way that your muscle memory is is taught to fire over years and years. So USA Cycling, the message is they should focus on their rowing program? I already told Mike Sayers, I said, look, if you want to recruit <laughs> rowers, or sorry, if you want to recruit new cyclists, you just need to go to all the 
of the colleges with rowing programs or junior junior rowing programs and just yeah fuck them yeah, it's interesting to see the transfer. I remember as coaching the high school mountain bike team, and I'd see kids in, in, in other sports, and I'd have to go say, hey, you ever think about racing mountain bikes, you know, mm-hmm. bo- both for their athletic ability, but just for the mental tenacity? Yeah. There um, were a lot of things I had to unlearn from rowing as well, though. Like, just for example. Is that right? Like what? Um, for example, the, the leg in cycling, it moves in a, in a circle, right? And so when I drive my power into my pedals, I want to go in a straight line, like right through the crank. Like, and so it took me a long time to learn how to apply power in like this arc kind of shape because I wanted to sit lower on my saddle. I wanted to use my arms more and I just wanted to like, like yank on that. Uh, I want to like pull with my arms and yank, like, like thrust with my leg right through the, uh, right through the crank arm, like not around the crank in a circle, but just through it. And so <laughs> my entire pedal stroke. So that was something um, that I had to to work on. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of micro things like like that. Yeah. So you, you mentioned you mentioned your coach uh, Mike Sayers, who I remember riding bikes with and and seeing him out at the Grasshoppers. And uh, you know. I think that's where I first met you. I think I got a message. Hey, my coach said I should come do one of these races. What are these about? And that was, I think, the last event we got to do before COVID. And I'm very happy to say and to see that it's on your Wikipedia page. (laughs) I've often asked athletes, hey, they have all these Palmars. What about the grasshopper? So you know, obviously that's not what your uh, teams were looking at, but that was that was a remarkable day, and it was great to have you out there at, at the Grasshoppers. I'm glad to have uh, had you in our circle of our orbit for a little while before joining the Pro Tour. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. That race was really interesting because it was my first mass start event. So in Europe, we have maybe 100 women starting a race, sometimes more, maybe 160, I think, at one race. and And yet... I'd never done a race with that many people starting. Um, in the U.S., we have these, you know, Cat 1 through 5 races, and oftentimes there might be 10, 15, maybe 20 women starting the race. And so when I went to the Grasshopper, it was this mass start event, and just simple things like positioning from the very start of the race, like having to fight to get to the bottom of the climb in the front. That was something I never had to do before. And there were so many people at this race that I had to do that. And so it was really interesting for me because it actually, it did kind of give me this, this light introduction to what I might see in Europe. And then on top of that, it was a co-ed race. And so there's some really fast um, men out front and, um, and really fast groups. And so in, in the small, in, in the races in California and in the U.S. that I'd done, the field size for a woman was so small that you wouldn't get these, these groups of riders out front. You might get one or two out front, three out front in a small group that attacks. Um, and so I learned that, like, if I can just push a little harder to get on that group in front of me and then we all work together, we can create that much more of a gap to the group behind. And so it's that little push that can create this massive effect later. So there were a lot of small lessons like that um, that I really learned and actually really helped me from when I did come to Europe. Oh, that's cool to hear. And then, and then last year, the year before, we, you popped in when we did the two-day event at, at the Mill District. And, and I've told this story to several people, and I think I told it to you as well. But I remember we had uh, two days of riding. One was Old Kaz, and one day was the Geysers. But after the Old, the old Kaz ride, which was not one of the time segments, I know there was a uh, – I think I was in the second group back. And when I saw Pete Stetna later, whose eyes were like saucers – because he had never ridden with you before, and you, you and he and Ted and I forget who else were pinning it up there, and he's like, "Mig, I had to, I stopped and and I texted and called like three people. I like, she needs to get on a bigger team. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, he was he was like he was like speechless. The power that you guys were doing, and I think you were you were conversing at the same time. So <laughs> I don't know if Pete got a good a good, a good word in or not, but but Pete and Ted were uh, incredibly impressed. And that and that's back to having you know men and women riding together. I think you you hit on a good point where. If the field size were large enough here, you know, sometimes we've done a women's only field, but, you know, I think that's one of the beauties of bike riding is there's a a lot of overlap between the top athletes, between men and women. And so to be able to get in a field where they're riding, racing together, I think is, is not only fun, but it's, it's good training. 
Yeah, and I think being able to challenge myself um, was something that was really important. I mean, we're we're always going to improve when we're around people who are better than us. And I think the more people we can surround ourselves with challenge us, the better we're going to become and the faster we're going to get there. And um, in the U.S., the field sizes were just so small for, for women's road racing at the time that it was really hard to surround myself with so many people that were so much faster because there were only so many people in the race. And so um, I think, yeah, having that, um, having that was really nice to just have a fresh set of legs near me that I had never ridden with before. And you mentioned, you know, being by people that challenge us, I think, you know, athletically and, and, and personally uh, as well, things that just, just keep us growing. And I think that's, that's the spice of life that, um, you know, makes it worth, worth doing each day. Um, I want to segue in, and it's taken a lot of time here. I know you're ready to do some more recovery, but I have a segment called This or That, and then uh, I'll just have two things, and you just have to pick one, uh, and then uh, we'll go from there. They're not not too deep, but let's let's see here. Um, espresso or cortado? Espresso. Climb or time trial? Climb. Mountains or ocean? Ooh, I'd say ocean. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Pasta or tacos? Oh, where is it? Me? Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Beer or wine? Cal yeah, in Europe, pasta. In the U.S., tacos. Uh, uh, wine. California or Spain? Mm, California. Fix it or bring it in? Fix it. Instagram reels or books? Books. Hot or cold? Ooh, this has changed since I moved from Alaska. I'd say right now hot, but most of my life until a year ago, the first 25 years of my life, I would have said cold. You would have said cold, and now you're dealing with the heat. Well, yeah, now, I say hot. now you say hot. So to wrap up the interview, I just want to get, you know, for our listeners, I'll get this published as quick as possible. Tell me about uh, your hopes and plans for the uh, remainder of your season. I, or maybe we could just uh, not get too far ahead. Tell me about the uh, Tour de France and your prep leading up to that and uh, what your next month looks like. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so the tour, I'm, I'm just hoping that my fitness carries through and, and continues to improve. Um, I want the chance to climb with some of the best riders in the world and really see what I can do against them. And I know that this Tour de France is going to be much more competitive than the Giro. It's just going to be another level of intensity and new riders coming in. And um, I'm just excited for the chance to to give my best against everyone else who's also giving their best. Like everyone is prioritizing this race and that doesn't always happen in other races throughout the year. Um, and I'm excited to have my parents watch me race for the first time ever in Europe. And I'm excited to hear about new cycling fans that didn't watch women's racing before. Um, and then after the Tour de France, my schedule's a little bit up in the air. Um, we have, I'm doing Plouet, which is a one day race in August. And then we have two stage races, um, the, tour, the Battle of the North, which is in early August, and then the Vuelta España, um, which is early September. And then both of those will kind of depend on how I'm feeling after the Tour de France. Like I might, if I need a break, I might skip the Battle of the North, and if I'm feeling good, maybe I'll do it. So um, we're going to gauge how I feel in those. Um, but yeah, my, my goal for the rest of the season is to continue improving on more of the tactical side of things, like communicating with my team and being present at the front of the race in, in the really busy times and yeah, all those things that I really want to continue improving on. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm actually thinking more about kind of my personal goals and, and the things that I want to improve on more so than my results. And I think if I just focus on those processes, the results will come. And I'm, I'm kind of at a luxury at this point in my career, and then I can say that. Uh, <laughs> and then I focus more on the process than the results, because in a year I might not be saying that. So, yep. 100%. Well, best of luck. It's been fantastic uh, seeing your, your your early season with the Tour de Suisse and, and um, 
the Giro, I say early season because you missed most of your spring, although I know it's it's mid-season. Uh, we look forward to to following you in the Tour de France and uh, hopefully seeing you again in Girona, if not before that in California. And uh, best of luck in your, in your training leading up to the Tour, and uh, we'll be cheering for you. Thank you so much, Nick. Have a great rest of your day. And um, right. thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. Take care, Kristen. Have a great day. Thank you.